4, and in particular, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 35. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Um, there's an outline on the back of the handout, if that's helpful for you, to keep an eye on as, as we move along. Write down anything that, that you think could be helpful. Luke 24, 13 through 35, just a reminder, there's those ESV Bibles right out the door if you want to grab one of those and, uh, and look along. It'll definitely be helpful to have some copy of God's Word open in front of you as, as we move throughout the passage. Uh, we moved here from Maine, so I pastored a church in Maine for eight and a half years. And uh, in Maine, we had there were there were lots of keys for the church buildings. So we had sort of the main meeting space that we were in, and there was a fellowship hall underneath. And then there was a building next door, and that's where the kids' classes were. That's where my office was. Well, that building next door had gone through a different, uh, a couple different deadbolts on the door. So the the key for the handle and for the deadbolt were different. So I had two keys there. And then my office key and the different doors inside the building, there were a few of those. So probably four or five keys for that building. And then in the church building, there were probably three keys. So lots of keys. In fact, I had on my keychain, I would have it in between my car key and Maria's van key so that I just knew where all the church keys were, several of them. One great thing about Cornerstone, there's basically two keys for this building. And between those two keys, you, you can open everything you need to get to, which, which is great. Well, the, the Bible makes it clear when it comes to gaining spiritual sight and understanding the gospel, understanding the Bible and using the Bible, there's only one key and it's Christ. He's the key to doing all of those things. And, and that's what we see in our passage this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus and about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back and said that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Well, again, in this narrative, it's clear that Jesus is the key. And our passage bears down on at least four activities, four achievements that, that Christ is the key to. So first, he's, he's the key, key to spiritual sight. Second, he's the key to understanding the gospel. Third, he's the key to understanding your Bible. And finally, he's the key to using your Bible. So the first thing we see here again, Jesus is the key to spiritual sight. Look again at how our passage this morning begins. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, verse 13 tells us this event is happening on Sunday. So this is the same day that Jesus has risen from the dead. And the newly resurrected Jesus, he shows up and he begins to travel with these two disciples. But the shocking thing is they don't recognize him. That's the thing that as a reader, especially if you think about, okay, if I was reading this story for the first time, what would stand out? That would stand out. The risen Christ, they are disciples of his. He's walking with them. They don't recognize him. And it's not even just like they pass one another at a crossroads. No, he comes alongside them and is walking with them over maybe this entire journey. That's seven miles, we're told, at least a significant portion of it. And he's doing a lot of the talking. And again, these are his disciples. How in the world do they not recognize Jesus? How do they not realize it's him? Verse 16 tells us. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's why they didn't realize this was Jesus. Their eyes were kept from seeing that it was Christ. Well, well, who is it who's keeping their eyes from seeing him? Who's the active agent here keeping them from recognizing him? Let's look over at verses 30 through 31 to answer that. Verse 30, when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So Jesus, through the action of breaking this bread, which, which he teaches us in the institution of the Lord's Supper, is a picture of, of his body being broken. He uses that action to somehow supernaturally wake them up to take the blinders off, where, where then they realize who this is, that it's Christ. And this is our first point this morning. Jesus is the key to spiritual sight. The, the reason the two folks didn't recognize him initially is because Jesus didn't want them to recognize him. And the reason that at the end of the story they do recognize him is because Jesus wanted them to recognize him. Listen to what Jesus told us back in Luke chapter 10, verse 22. There he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows who the son is except the father, or who the father is except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is the one who is in charge of people seeing Jesus for who he really is. Jesus is in charge of that. P people seeing Jesus as the savior, that's not left up to chance. That's not left up to, to merit. No, it's determined by Jesus, who graciously reveals himself to a group of sinners. So they see who he is. You might remember, but, but there's a great line in the Lord of the Rings. If you've read those books or seen that movie. So Gandalf, who's a wizard, he shows up. And Frodo, who's the main character, he says this thing to him. He says, you're late. 
And you might remember what Gandalf says. He says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. I wish Matt Lawson was here, Matt Lawson. He says a wizard's never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. That's the same kind of thing that happens with Christ. He, he's never truly discovered by somebody he doesn't choose to be discovered by. And he's never kept from someone who he chooses to reveal himself to. He, he works all of that out exactly as he wants to. And, and for Cornerstone Baptist Church, the application here is simple. If you know Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as your Savior, in, in other words, if you can see spiritually, then praise Jesus for it. He's the one who came and got you. He's the one who revealed himself to you. It's not you that found him. Just like we see in verse 15, Jesus is the one who draws near. These disciples don't go looking for him. He comes to them on the road. It's the same thing with you. If you're a Christian, Jesus drew near. He came near to you. And so what's said in verse 31 about these two travelers can be said about you. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So see, Jesus is the key to spiritual sight. But our passage teaches us a lot more than just that. So second, Jesus is the key to understanding the gospel, the good news of Christianity. Jesus is the key to understanding that. In other words, if you want to know how the gospel works, just look at Jesus. And in particular, look at his life, his death, and his resurrection. So you'll remember our passage begins with these two disciples not recognizing Jesus, even though he's been walking with them and talking with them, well, let's see what he's talking to them about. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Now, we should pause here for a second. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's asking these folks questions, but he's not asking them questions because he needs information. Jesus knows what they're talking about. You see even more clearly, look down at verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? Okay, Jesus knows about his arrest and his crucifixion and his burial, right? He, he's not asking those questions looking for information. No, he's using those questions to look for transformation from them. It's not for him. He's not asking those questions to benefit himself. He's asking those questions to benefit them. He's using those questions to benefit these two disciples. It's just like God in the garden after Adam and Eve sin. You might remember this. God shows up and he says, Adam, where are you? Does God not know where Adam is? Of course he knows where Adam God isn't looking for information. He's asking Adam that question. So through answering it, Adam will see what's going on in his heart. God's looking for transformation by asking that question. And it's the same here with Jesus. He, he wants these disciples to think about their answers to his question. Because those answers are going to show some misunderstanding about the gospel. That's the thing is here. We'll talk more about that in a second. But, but just real quick in terms of application, because this is something Jesus does regularly. He asks questions to aid the person he's talking to, not looking for information, looking for transformation. And, and for those of us who have children still living at home, it's, it's probably wise for us to follow Jesus's example here. 
at least sometimes. So, so we should ask questions to try and get at our kids' hearts, to try to draw out what's going on in their hearts so they can see it. So, so when one of our kids won't share their toys with the sibling, instead of just fussing at them or punishing them, both good things to do, right? Things that the Lord commands. But sometimes we should start out by asking some questions. Hey, why do you think you're so upset that he's playing with the toy right now instead of you? you? You really like that toy, don't you? So a moment ago when you were so upset about him taking that toy, who do you think you were valuing more? Were you valuing your sibling more, saying that he's the most valuable thing? Or were you saying that this toy is more valuable than your sibling? And even saying, you know, Jesus was the perfect human who always did everything perfectly pleasing to God. Can you think of something that Jesus was willing to give up for you? You know, those kinds of questions that Jesus asks to us, we can turn around as parents and try to ask those sorts of questions of our children. Again, we're not looking for information. We're, we're aiming at, at transformation. It's what Christ does here. Well, look at what his questions uncover. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, what things? What, what are you talking about? What are you sad about? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Okay, so here's what Jesus has uncovered by his question to them. They have a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. They have a misunderstanding of the way the gospel works. So the, the way they thought about it, they thought and continued to think that, that the good news of the gospel is that God sends a savior. And then as soon as he gets on the scene, he'll bring full and final victory right away. That's what they thought was going to happen. The Messiah comes, he squares everything away right away. So they thought it was a single step plan, which is glory. The Messiah comes, and then there's glory. There's heaven. He, he makes everything right. But see, what had happened to Jesus dashed their hopes for him. Because remember, three days earlier, it wasn't that Jesus was coronated as the king, and then everybody bowed their knees, and then Jesus gets his army ready to go destroy all of his enemies. You know, three days earlier, he was arrested and wrongfully tried and crucified and killed. So it really dashed their hopes for him. Look again at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So that was their hope. But, but notice the first word in verse 21 is, but. So basically they're saying, yeah, we had hoped that was the case, but that's been proven to be false. He, he's not the savior. He's not the one to redeem Israel because in their minds, because of what they say in verse 20. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So again, they think the gospel is a single step plan, glory. The Savior comes, saves everybody right away. But see, that understanding of the gospel is a misunderstanding. Look at Jesus' response, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus' answer to them is, hey, the gospel isn't a single-step plan. It's a two-step plan. Glory comes, but suffering comes first. That's the plan of the gospel. It's suffering and then glory. 
Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus not only says the path of the Messiah was, was suffering in glory, he says it couldn't have been any other way. It had to be suffering and then glory. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Now, why is it that it was necessary for Christ to suffer? Why did that have to happen? We've talked about this before, but you might remember um, the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. So many non-believers, you may have had conversations with them. They walked out of that movie saying, why did that have to happen? Okay, clearly that shouldn't have happened. Jesus was innocent. Why'd they do that to him? That's horrible. Why did it have to happen? And that's the question we can think about here. Jesus says it was necessary that he suffer. Why? Why was it necessary that he suffer? You may be here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus. You might have that same question. Why? Why did he have to suffer? Okay, well, well, here it is. We could go to lots of different places in Scripture. Let's just go to Romans 6, verse 23. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and what we're told there, for the wages of sin is death. So in other words, the, the correct penalty for a Christian who rebels against their, or for a creature who rebels against their creator. So as humans, we all sin. The, the right punishment, the correct penalty for a creature that turns away from their creator is death. Now, we all have a category for correct punishment, right? So we all have a category for somebody doing something foolish enough at work where the right and just penalty is for them to turn that job over. They get fired. That's a good thing that happens in work sometimes. We have a category for that. We have a category for somebody committing a crime bad enough where the right and just penalty for them is to turn over their freedom by going to prison. Well, the right and just penalty for rebellion against an eternally good and holy God is to turn over your life. And see, because, because God is good, he can't just ignore that rightful penalty. It's not like in politics where somebody gets elected to a particular office and then they can all of a sudden commute somebody's sentence. They can pardon somebody. They can sort of overlook that thing that they did that deserves the penalty. No, God's too good for that. He's better than we are. Somebody has to be punished for your sins. Somebody has to be punished for my sins. In the language of verse 26 in our passage, somebody has to suffer. But see, here's the gospel. Christ suffered in the place of sinners. He suffered in the place of of sinners. For all the Christians in this room, because we've placed our hope and confidence in Christ, his suffering on the cross was in our place. And so, see, God remains just and good because sin was paid for. A life was given. But it doesn't have to be our lives in hell for all eternity. It was Jesus's perfect life given on the cross. So, so remember that the Son of God, he had glory before he came into our world. He, he didn't need to suffer in order to get glory for himself. The Son of God had glory from all eternity, right? So why did he do it? He did it because that's what had to happen for us to get to glory. For us to get to glory, suffering had to come first. It required it. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So see, someone won't understand the gospel until they understand the suffering of Christ under the wrath of God. They have to understand that to understand the gospel. There's no gospel apart from it. And Jesus's life makes that clear. And if you are here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about Jesus. If what I'm saying makes some sense to you, 
if you can connect those dots and, and sort of understand, even if you're not sold on it, but if you just say, okay, at least that kind of makes sense. I, I see what's happening there. Then, then keep pursuing that. And maybe you hear me say that and you think, I buy that. I believe that. Well, then the thing for you to do is, is to make the decision to quit holding on to your sin and, and instead hold on to Christ by placing your full faith and hope and confidence in him. And then his suffering will count for your sins. So if that's you, if you're in any of those categories, come talk to me after the service or email me or talk to one of the other pastors here. Now, if you're a member of this church, then you hopefully have no objection with what we just said. You understand this part of the gospel. It was necessary that Christ gave up his life and suffer for you, suffer in your place to save you. But here's where we oftentimes struggle is that we might believe that in terms of the gospel and our salvation, but then we disbelieve it when it comes to the Christian life. So we understand, okay, with the gospel, suffering, then glory, two-step plan, we get it. But then all of a sudden we switch and with our lives we think, no, it's not a two-step plan, it's a one-step plan, glory. I'm a Christian, things should be easy, right? When we come to Christ, things should be easy in our experience of this life. But see, the Bible teaches us Jesus's pattern of suffering before glory. That's also the pattern for us in Christian life. That's what we should expect. Suffering and then glory. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, a helpful verse. If what I just said, if you think, oh yeah, I'm guilty of that. The way that I am guilty of that regularly, this is a good passage to think about, pray through often. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, talking to us as Christians, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So we follow him in his steps. If you've ever uh, caravaned with a group of folks and let's say there's a car that's a few miles ahead of you and they say, hey, just so you know, where there's a storm that pops up here, you're going to hit some heavy rain. Well, because you're on the same road, you're going to go through that rain. If you don't go through that rain, then you might wonder, am I following this person? Because they went through it. So why am I not seeing it? Well, that's what the Bible says about the Christian life. Jesus went through suffering. If we are following him, we should go through suffering. This is the way Jesus says it in Luke 14, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross, a hard thing, and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the Christian life is, is the life of suffering and then glory. But see, we oftentimes are surprised by that. Oftentimes we're even angry about that. So, so maybe when we get a difficult supervisor at work and then 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. five days a week gets hard for us, sometimes we're, we're super surprised by that and, and even angry. Why did this thing happen? What an odd thing that my life got harder than, than I thought it was supposed to be. But when we do that, it's like we're expecting the Christian life to be a single step plan, glory. And we're forgetting that it's a two step plan, suffering and then glory. Or when we have a child or relative get sick, or when we get sick, again, sometimes we're surprised. Sometimes we're, we're even angry. But again, that's like expecting the Christian life to be a single-step plan, glory, instead of a two-step plan, suffering, and then glory. So these guys Jesus is talking about, they're surprised that, that the Messiah had to suffer. But we're oftentimes surprised that we have to suffer, and, and we shouldn't be. It's a two-step plan. Suffering comes before glory. And Jesus says these guys should have known this was the case because of the Bible. He points back to the Old Testament. Look at verse 27. 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's pointing to the pattern in the Old Testament of suffering and then glory. Now, we aren't given a, a bullet, bullet point sort of bit by bit uh, retelling of, of Jesus's talk. But I think we'll be helped by just with our own minds looking back at the Old Testament and just hitting a few of the high points of where we see this pattern. Suffering and then glory. It's clear enough where Jesus spends a lot of time talking about it. So, so where do we see this, this pattern in the Old Testament? Well, we can go back all the way to Genesis 3 for the first one. The very first thing that in the set of the first things God says after the fall, this is the prophecy given to the devil about Jesus. Genesis 3, 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the coming Messiah won't only experience victory. It's not all glory. It's not just that he will crush the serpent's head. No, the servant will also bruise his heel. He's talking about Jesus' suffering. It's two things, suffering and glory. Or think about the patriarch Joseph, who sold into slavery by his own brothers, right? By his own people, turned him over. In fact, he was sold for silver coins. Does that sound familiar? Joseph is turned over. He's wrongfully accused. He's put in prison. Well, that all happened before he was exalted to leadership in the kingdom. Do you remember? There's that pattern, suffering and then glory. He's a shadow pointing to Christ. Or think about Jonah. Jonah in the belly of the whale. For how long? Three days. Is that a coincidence? No. Jesus tells us that in Matthew 12. He was a shadow pointing forward to Christ, suffering and then glory. He's in the whale of the belly before he's released. Flip a page over backwards to Luke 22, verse 37. And there Jesus says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 53 about the suffering of the coming Savior. Let's hear a bit more of that chapter. This is Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So those are the kinds of passages Jesus is pointing to, these two guys on on the road to Emmaus. So whereas Jesus' suffering and death signaled to these two guys that he was not the Messiah, it should have been the exact opposite. That's what they should have been looking for. Suffering and death is what they should have been expecting from the Messiah. And that's why we should expect the same thing as we follow Jesus throughout our life. So Jesus is the key to understanding the gospel. But, But think about this. If the Bible is all about the gospel, which it is, And if Jesus is the key to understanding the gospel, which he is, 
then Jesus is also the key to understanding the Bible, which is our third point. Jesus is the key to understanding the Bible. Look back at verses 25 through 27, and let's note the use of the word all in these verses. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what part of the Bible is about Jesus? All of it. All of it. Jesus is the key to understanding your Bible. Genesis 3 is about Christ. Isaiah 53 is about Christ. The story of Joseph, a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. Jonah, a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. The book of Hebrews, what the book of Hebrews does primarily is point to the institutions in Israel and then show how all of those institutions were pointing forward to Christ. He's the better priesthood, right? The sacrifices of bull and bulls and goats, they were always pointing forward to the greater sacrifice, who was Christ. The sanctuary that they build under the old covenant, that was pointing forward to the place where Christ has gone in the heavens to take us before the Lord because we've been covered by his blood. He brings us into God's presence. He's the better sanctuary. That's who the sanctuary is now. It's, it's Jesus. Now listen, this doesn't mean that, that every passage is only pointing to Jesus. It's not like our work is done and the only thing for us in verses in the Bible is, okay, how do I get to Jesus and, and that's it? No, there's more than that. But there's not less than that. So, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, we'll be familiar with this, this verse. It says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Okay, that verse is not just pointing to Jesus. No, there's actual instruction there, right? To love God. We're called to do this particular thing. But, but when you read that verse, you should also remember that you have not loved God perfectly. You haven't fulfilled the main purpose of the law, just like I haven't. We haven't loved God perfectly. But we should also remember, but Christ has. And our only hope is that the one who loved God perfectly could be a fitting sacrifice to pay for our sin of not loving God perfectly. And not only that, but Jesus has sent his spirit, the spirit of Christ, to live inside of you, to actually grow you to where you love God more today than you did a month ago. So Jesus is really the main point of that verse. There's other things, but, but that's the main point. He's the one who, who makes our obedience possible, the one who achieved forgiveness for the sin of us not doing that thing. A lot of you probably remember the, the Where's Waldo books. So our kids like those books. Remember, there, there's cluttered scenes, and then you're looking for Waldo, who's that guy that has the striped, red and white striped shirt, and the funny hat, and the glasses, and the cane. Okay, well, well each page, it also has a list of other things to look for. So it's not just Waldo. You find Waldo, but then it's also, we'll say, and find the suitcase, and find the dolphin, and, you know, find Santa Claus, whatever it is. So you're looking for those things, too, but the main thing is looking for Waldo. Okay, well, in our Bible reading as Christians, we're looking for all sorts of things. We're looking for what's going on in the immediate context. We're, we're looking for what that passage teaches us about God, about who he is. We're looking for what it's calling us to do in terms of obedience, how we can apply that teaching in practical ways. 
But the most important thing we're looking for when we're reading the Bible is how that passage points to Jesus. That's the main thing that we're doing. So remember that, especially when you're reading the Old Testament. It's easy to miss it. It's easy to forget it. But it's the main thing we're looking for. When my kids see a nativity scene, they're probably not unique in this. They always do uh, the same thing first. Where's Jesus? That's not because of some like great parenting that we did or some spiritual lesson we taught. I think it's just they you know Jesus is the central character, so they see a nativity. They're all saying, okay, where's Jesus? Well, well, that should be our question when we're reading the Bible. Not only the Gospel of Luke, but when we're reading Genesis or 1 Samuel or Amos. When we're reading our Bible, that reading isn't complete until we find Christ. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is the key to understanding your Bible. But finally, Jesus is also the key to using your Bible. So after Jesus explains to these two folks, why they should have been expecting a suffering savior. Look at what happens. Remember, they still don't recognize him. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. You see how sneaky and clever Jesus is? He's innocent as a dove, but he's also wise as a serpent. He acts like he's going further. He knows that he's not going to go further, but he acts like it. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Okay, so they invite him. They say, hey, travel is not going to be easy now. It's getting dark. We're going to stay overnight. Why don't you come and stay with us? He does. Once they're inside, the three of them, him and these two disciples, they sit down to have a meal. Verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Okay, so finally they recognize Jesus. Again, the avenue he uses is that symbol of the bread. Calls our minds back to the Lord's Supper. Chapter 22, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Because he uses that symbol of the bread being broken. That points forward to his broken body. He uses that symbol to supernaturally wake them up, Right? These two folks, they're, they're with other disciples later at the end of our passage. Look at what they say about that. Verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Okay, so he wakes them up. They see it's Jesus. Back to verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So, so as those disciples look back on the journey that they had that day, where Jesus was with them, he's explaining the scriptures to them, he opens the Bible to them, they realized in retrospect something unique had been happening. And they knew it at the time. They just didn't know how to put their finger on why it was happening. So as, as Jesus taught them the Old Testament, to use the language of verse 32, as he opened to them the scriptures, it wasn't just their heads that were engaged. It was also their hearts. That's the thing that stood out to them on the back end. It was also their hearts. Look at verse 32 again. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us 
the scriptures. And of course, that's exactly what we need to happen with our Bible reading, isn't it? It's the thing as Christians we know we need. It's the thing we want, the thing we pray for. We, we should never want to read the Bible merely to learn new things and to, to make us smarter. The, the, the liberal university professor who doesn't love Jesus, he does that. She does that, just learning things, accumulating wisdom about what Scripture says. No, we don't just want to learn new things and, and be made smarter. The Word does that, certainly teaches us things. We, we gain knowledge about Scripture. No, what we need that truth to do is to transform our hearts. That's what we, that's what we need. Listen to the way Jesus says that the Christian interacts with God's Word. He says this in the parable of the sower. Luke chapter 8, verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So for the word to do its good work, it, it has to get to our hearts. Well, it, it clearly got to the hearts of, of these two disciples. So how did that happen? How did that happen? What, what was distinct about their time hearing the Bible that day? Well, what was distinct was they had Jesus with them. That's what was unusual. That's what was distinct. They had Jesus with them like, like a tour guide. He was the one taking them through the word. His presence was the difference maker. His presence is, is why the word went further than just their heads and their hearts burned within them. And as we close, the good news for us as Christians is he's with us in our Bible reading too. That's the good news for us from the end of this passage this morning. He's with us in our Bible reading too. Don't forget what Luke is going to record for us in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. What does Jesus give the church at Pentecost? He gives the church his spirit. He sends his spirit down to indwell believers. The way that Romans chapter 8 verse 10 says it is that as a Christian, you have the spirit of Christ. And because of that, it can sum it up by saying Christ is in you. So he sent his spirit into you. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, his spirit is inside of you right now. You have Christ in you. Now that's staggering, isn't it? I thought about that multiple times this week, and I am as staggered and off kilter now thinking about it as I was at the beginning. Christ is in you. He is present inside of you. And as you read the Bible this past week, he was with you. Like John 1.9 says, he's the true light which gives light to everyone. Or like 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, we have the mind of Christ. Jesus is the key to using your Bible. Christ in you is the key to, to not just hearing the word, but understanding the word. And he's not just the key to understanding the word. He's the key to being affected by the word. By you being enlivened and encouraged and convicted. Real quick, there, there's something we should notice about the priority of the Bible in verses 21 through 25. It's easy to go past it, but it's pretty incredible when, when you think about it for a second. So remember, when Jesus first starts walking with them, these two disciples, they're recounting what had happened to Jesus and how, how they were disappointed because those events had proven to them, at least they thought, that Jesus was not the Messiah. Look again at what they say, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning when they did not find his body. They came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, he, but him they did not see. The wild thing about this is there's evidence all around these guys that Jesus is the Savior. Everything they just recounted should have made it really clear to them, oh no, Jesus is in fact the Son of God. This miraculous thing has happened. But they're just like, you know, isn't it the darndest thing? His body wasn't there. We're not sure why. And then there were these angels, and they were talking about how the reason his body isn't there is because he's risen and he's the Savior. And then we went, and another guy checked it out, and yeah, he was like, yeah, his body's not there. Isn't that crazy? And then they just go right past it. Such a, such a wild thing. But, but here's what's instructive for us, is where Jesus goes next. He doesn't say you guys are foolish for ignoring this mountain of forensic evidence, all these details that have no other explanation. Now, that's not where Jesus goes. Look at why he says they're foolish. Verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He fusses at them for not believing the Bible. Isn't that something? That's where Jesus goes. It's like he's saying, yeah, the physical evidence for the Son of God's suffering and being resurrected is strong, but why on earth are you not convinced by what Scripture says? That's where Jesus goes. God's Word is always greater evidence than anything else. Always. In fact, God's Word is enough to say, case closed, on everything to which it speaks. Now, it's helpful to, to level other arguments as we have opportunity to look and see that the evidence fits with what God's word says, but God's word doesn't need that. No, God's word is enough to say case closed on everything to which it speaks. And that's why as Jesus walks with these disciples, he's not arguing from the physical and the eyewitness testimony for his resurrection, although those, those arguments are valid and helpful and other places in scripture do that. But no, Jesus is spending his time taking them straight to the Bible. No, you should have known I was going to suffer because that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus does. We say all of that to say this. Christ has put all his eggs in the basket of the Bible. It's the Bible that Jesus is, is putting all of his eggs in in terms of our spiritual growth. It's, it's the avenue by which Jesus plans to grow you as a Christian. So, so understanding that, don't you think his spirit inside of you is going to make that word useful? Of course he will. Of course he'll do that in you. Christ in you will open your mind to the scriptures and take it to your heart. All you need to do is put yourself in the word. That's the main application of this final point. Just put yourself in the word. We need to do what these disciples did in verse 29. But they urged him strongly stay, saying, stay with us. They want to keep walking on that road with Jesus as he's explaining them to them the scriptures. They want to stay with him. Now think about us. Think about all the things we're tempted to do instead of walking along in the word with Christ. We're tempted to, to spend our time looking at, at web pages or Facebook or sports or Netflix. We're tempted to say to those things all the time, stay with us, right? Sports games. One, I mean, yesterday a football game would end. What am I doing? immediately looking for the next football game. Now, that's not bad in and of itself, right? I think in many ways, that's the kindness of the Lord. But the zeal that we have to do that, to keep those things with us on the road, it should be outpaced 
by our zeal to keep Christ on the road with us by being in his word. And as we walk with Christ and read his word, he will make our hearts burn within us. He'll make us look more like him. He'll give us a greater hope for his return. Christ in you wants to make his word useful. He, he wants to transform you from the inside out. And, and when you carve out that time to read his word, that's inviting you, or that's you inviting Jesus to take a walk with you and open to you the scriptures. Isn't that incredible? We don't see it that way, but that's the way the Lord is calling all of us to see it right now. When you carve out time to be in the word, that's you inviting Christ to take a walk with you and teach you the scriptures. And he will take that walk with you every single time. And he will go as far as you want to go, right? He'll go as far as you want to go. He is such a good savior. And don't we need him? He, he's the key to everything. So, so, so what do you need to, to see spiritually? Look to Jesus. How do you understand the gospel? Look to Jesus. How do you understand your Bible? Look to Jesus. And how do you use your Bible? Look to Jesus. He's the key. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you have sent us the key to all of these things. We understand apart from Jesus, it would be like a lockbox that we don't have the key for. It'd be like a safe deposit box that's in a bank that, that they wouldn't even let us get close to. And even if we did get close to it, we don't have the key. Father, these things, they, they aren't one for us by our own wisdom or merit or insight. They're one for us by Christ, and they are only available in him. But that's such good news for us because the good news of the gospel is merely by trusting alone in Christ for our salvation, we're given that key. We're so thankful, Father, for our good Savior, 